dried up like a dry pot, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are in display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let us be still for a moment. If you do nothing else, just look at the cross. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The Lord foils the plans of the nations, he thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. 
Father God, in a turbulent world, we look at the cross. In a world that seems to be turned upside down, whether it's with Brexit debates or whether it's the nations rising and falling, whether it's with unrest in Venezuela, or whether it's governments falling in Sudan. Father, we come and we look upon a turbulent world, a world full of unrest, a world full of uncertainty, a world that can be very fearful, a world that can be very uncertain. But Father, we come and we look at the cross because we recognise that the cross was the greatest day in history. It was the day that when all things changed. It was the day when your Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord, took upon himself the pain, the hostility, the fear and the darkness of this world who took upon himself my sin, our sin, our shame and our guilt. And he allowed your judgment, your wrath to fall upon him. So that we did not have to suffer it. So that we did not have to experience it. And we thank you, Father, this morning that it was there at the cross that you unleashed the tsunami of grace that continues to swirl around this world and will one day climax in that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ will be fully revealed as who he is, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, the ruler of the universe, the ruler of nations. But Father, in the midst of the darkness that still swirls around us, we hold on to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we put our trust in him, even in the midst of the uncertainty of Brexit, even in the midst of all the uncertainties of life, even in the midst of all the struggles of life, whether they be personal or corporate or national, we simply say that Jesus Christ is Lord. You are the one who is enthroned above it all. And so we bow before you today. And we come and we bow at the foot of the cross. Open our eyes afresh to the wonder of the cross. Amen. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I'll stop there. I could go on. I guess many of us could quote that hymn quite simply, quite straightforwardly. It's one we sing. It's probably a favourite of many of us. 
But just stop there. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let's just for a moment stop and recognise who it was who died upon that cross. The Prince of Glory. God's Son. God's beloved Son whom he gave as a sacrifice for us all. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That's what the scripture tells us. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Christ died. Do we realise this morning that there can be no glory without the altar? There can be no resurrection without a death. And Jesus went to the altar and Jesus went to death so that you and I don't need to. There's a moment in the Gospels, in the Gospel account of the crucifixion, when darkness descends over all the land. Although it is early afternoon, Jesus is there naked, nailed and spread out on a cross of wood. He grasps for breath because every movement is an effort. Every breath calls for him to haul himself up on those nails, gasping for breath. He's being mocked and he's being scorned at by the crowds around. But he pushes himself up one last time, if you like. And the gospel writers record the cry, that he cries out in a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening words here of Psalm 22 written so many generations previously by King David, someone whom Peter refers to in Acts 2 as a prophet who, seeing what ahead, spoke of Christ. Somehow all those that, that hundreds of years previously, David's eyes had been opened to see his Messiah to see Jesus, and this is what he saw. This is what he saw in Psalm 22. One commentator has powerfully written, no Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. It's not a description of illness, but of execution. Another commentator has written, so exactly does it portray the suffering of our Lord that it has aptly been called the fifth gospel. Psalm 22 gives us the human view of the cross. What it cost Jesus to take up the cross. Something we shy away from. I well remember the first time that I watched the Passion film. And there were times that I turned away. And yeah, people accuse it of being too brutal. 
but in some senses it wasn't brutal enough. Psalm 22 cuts into two parts, verses 1 to 21 speak very much of the present suffering, but then verses 22 to 31, it speaks of the triumphs and the glories that will follow. The first part of it takes the form of a lament in three parts, a song of mourning. In the verse, verses 1 to 2, he speaks of being deserted by God. In verses 6 to 8, he speaks about being despised by others. And in verses 12 to 18, he speaks about despairing even for himself. But even in the midst of this lament, we find there is an affirmation of trust. But you, but you, but you, he says, throughout this lament. And then finally it ends in a, in a song of praise. Let's look just for a moment at the troubles, the troubles he faced, the trust he shows and the triumphs that follow. The one that David is speaking about here, yes, is in agony. You cannot read these words but recognising that. And first, his, his first lament is that he feels deserted by God. The psalm begins with a heart-rendering cry of desolation and despair. He's feeling utterly God-forsaken. The heavens are closed to him. The door has been shut. He doesn't feel God's presence. He doesn't know God's presence. It's a cry that echoes from the very depths of his being, encapsulating everything, his physicality, his emotions, his spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's almost as if he's in turmoil. This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be going on. Where are you, God? Because many of us can feel like that at times, can't we? The cloud of depression comes over. And it seems as if heaven shut the door. The diagnosis comes or the illness comes. And the struggle and the battle against circumstances. That desolation. The heavens are silent and there seems to be a vast chasm between him and the God that he trusted, leaving a massive tension between belief and experience. On the one hand, he holds this belief in the eternal God who is always present and yet the experience in the here and now, seems to deny it. His theology tells him that he ought not to be ignored by God. But his experience makes him feel deserted, alone and vulnerable. But he not only feels deserted by God, he feels despised by others. The psalmist's sense of God's absence is then aggravated by the presence of others. If God seems unreal, if God seems distant, then these others seem to be very real and very close. 
they are all too real. Their derisory comments and scornful body language undermine any sense of self-worth that he might have to the point that he feels less than human. Who am I? I'm a worm. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm a worm. I'm a nobody. They strike him where it hurts. They mock him for having apparently been abandoned by God. They point the finger, you trust in God? Huh, where is your God? Why doesn't he deliver you? Why doesn't he answer your prayers? And they pour scorn on him, on his face. This is what Matthew writes. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. The scorn, the derision, the mocking, the barbs that come flying. And it all sends the psalmist into a spiral. He feels deserted by God. He feels that nobody understands him and he's despised by others. And so he ends up despairing for himself. That spiral that goes on. In that third lament, the psalmist describes what the execution, <coughs> what the execution he is being subject to feels like. Using metaphors from the animal kingdom, he says he feels surrounded by bloodthirsty, baying beasts that will not be satisfied with anything less than his total destruction. Inflicted in the most terrifying way. He speaks of them being like strong bulls in verse 12. He speaks of them being roaring lions, tearing at their prey in verse 13. He speaks about snarling dogs in verse 16 encircling me, piercing my hands and my feet. The words invoke the abject terror of one who is powerless, but surrounded with no avenue of escape. I love watching the wildlife documentaries that we have on TV, you know, the David Attenborough specials and, and what have you. And I particularly love the ones that are associated to Africa. And you get there, don't you, the Cape Buffalo, you get there the lions, you get there the African dogs, the dingoes and the, the hyenas and what have you. Did you know that the, the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous animal of them all? He's the one that is feared most of all. But you get these pictures, don't you, particularly of the African dogs, of how they pursue the wildebeest. They literally pursue it. And they run it into the ground and they're snapping and they're snarling. And they surround it. And you can see as the camera pans in onto the wildebeest, the sheer abject terror in the face of that animal. 
has been being brought down by these dogs who just tear it to pieces. And that's the image that the psalmist is panning before us, painting before us. He gives full rein to his feelings of despair. His spent has poured out water. His body is broken, full of discolated limbs, and limp as melted wax, and his strength is evaporated like moisture out of a baked pot. He's a corpse, ready to be laid out for burial, whilst others squabble over his last remaining possessions. Physically, he is drained dry. Socially, he is isolated, alone and subject to cruel mockery. Spiritually, he is abandoned, groping for reality. And yet, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that despair, there comes the piercing sunlight. There comes the gleam of glory. There comes the tenuous thread of trust and of confidence. Verse 3, yet you are enthroned. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of my mother's womb. Verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. Throughout, throughout it all is that tenuous thread of trust. Trust in his eternal God. Terrified though he is at the mystery of God's desertion of him, he does not allow himself to lapse into unbelief. He draws from his reservoir of faith. Near, hear that? He draws from his reservoir of faith the lessons that he has learned in the good times. The lessons he has learned in the good times. And places his immediate situation in the broader context of what he knows and what he has experienced about God. From the shaky ground on which he now finds himself, he reaches out to the surer ground and brings his suffering into contact with another reality. The reality of his covenant God. And in do doing so, he affirms five things about God. And in these five things about God, what he does, he fuels his faith rather than feeds his fears. He fuels his faith rather than feeding his fears. First of all, he affirms himself of God's position. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, he says in verse 3. You are the one Israel praises. God's position in the universe, confirmed by the praises of his people Israel, is not to be doubted. It is there. It's not something that is up for discussion. It's not something that is up for negotiation. God is God, and that is who he is. Even though the darkness is around me, so he affirms God's position. 
He secondly, he affirms God's power. Verses 4 and 5. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The psalmist looks back to the history. History of the great deliverance from, the exodus, from Egypt with the conclusion that others before him have trusted God and God has not let them down. God has ultimately brought them through. And so he affirms God's power. Why should it be any different for him? Even though everything around him is dark. Then he affirms God's purpose in verse 9. Yet you brought me out of, my, of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. His birth and life was not a random happening. Hear that? All of you, hear that? Your birth and your life is not a random happening. You are not a non-entity. You're a somebody. Because God brought each and every one of us out of our mother's womb. His birth and life was not a random happening. It had purpose and significance because God had brought him out of his mother's womb. He was no accident, but the object of God's loving design and purpose. And so he affirms. He affirms God's purpose. But then he goes on to affirm also, fourthly, God's providence in verses 9 and 10, 10 and 11. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. From birth I was cast on you. If his birth was no accident, then neither was his life. He had been cast upon God and therefore upon God's providence and help. And therefore, even in the midst of the struggle that he's going through, even in the midst of the darkness that he is experiencing, there is purpose. There is purpose. Even though he can't see it, even though it's elusive to him, even though he doesn't understand and it's a mystery. Because from birth he's been cast upon God. And therefore there is purpose to his life. There is purpose to his struggle. There is purpose to the uncertainty. And then finally, he affirms God's promise. But you, O Lord, be not afar off. Verses 19 and 21. Oh, my strength, come quickly. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. Even in his darkest moment of desolation, the psalmist still affirms that God is his God and that God is the source of his strength and of his hope.
even though everything else around him says something else. He says, in you, O God, will I put my trust. In you, O God, will I hold on. And so we find the trust that he exhibits. But here it marks a turning point in the psalm. And for verse 21, it seems to turn into a song of praise. And it speaks about the triumphs to follow. The triumphs that will come out of this suffering. The triumphs that will come out of this execution. The shift in thinking in verse 22 is startling. It's almost as if the events of verses 1 to 21 have caused a mighty tsunami in the affairs of the world. A tsunami that begins here at the point of one person's greatest darkness and deepest despair. And it rolls out across the world and through the generations in ever-increasing circles of praise and of glory and of triumph. This one act of supreme sacrifice releases such a torrent of power that it changes the world forever. The God who at the beginning of the psalm is so distant and absent is now the focal point of everything. He has not hidden his face, but he has heard the cry for help. Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The passage begins with a personal declaration of praise and the fulfilling of promises made. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. And often that's it, isn't it? In the midst of darkness, we have to say to ourselves, I will declare your name. I will sing your praises in the assembly of the people in the darkest moments. This declaration then catches others up in its momentum. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. Culminating in what appears to be a great celebration with ever widening circles of involvement until in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And so we have this tsunami of praise, this tsunami of glory that comes and originates from one sacrifice, one person's struggle, one person's battle with darkness. And out of it there comes this eternal song of praise this eternal song of glory, this eternal song of triumph that comes out from the lips of that one who offered himself and who was executed there, that streams down through the generations. The vision we have here extends geographically out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and encompasses all nations and social classes in its embrace. It includes you and me. 
The vision also sweeps from the immediate to embrace future generations yet unborn. The psalmist sees a future when all the ends of the earth, verses 27 and 29, what? All the ends of the earth will kneel before him, will bow before him. Who? The one who has offered himself up. The one who has given himself. The one who has suffered on behalf of them all. What begins as a voice of one becomes a choir of many. It is a far-sighted vision amplified later by Paul in the New Testament, but coming to its fulfilment in the glorious vision of John, where he writes, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of who? The Lamb. John has previously spoken about the Lamb who was slain for the salvation of the world. Before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to the Lamb. The one who suffered. The one who died. The one who stood in David's place. The one who stood in your place. And the despair of the darkest day has become the glory of the most dazzling day. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And it flows from the cross. It flows from that one day in history. Brexit is not the defining moment of history. The cross is. The cross of Jesus Christ. When he, stood, when he went to that cross in your place and mine, so that we might wear those, right robe, those, those white robes of righteousness. Amen. We're going to pray. Simon, could you come back onto 